You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Benson. All right. As Adam said, I'm very privileged with the opportunity to be able to speak to you guys today. Um, I've got a lot of stuff to cover because whenever I chose the pastors that I was going to teach, I thought it was a lot simpler than it actually is, and that was my fault. Um, but there's actually tons of stuff in this passage that I wish to unpack if we get into it, and it's been a long time, and we haven't, been got, haven't gotten through it, we'll just stop, and I'll pick up with it the next time we get through it. Um, but if you would, we're going to turn into the book of Titus, and specifically in the chapter of 2, and uh, the second one. And uh, as you guys are turning, I'm just going to explain really quickly just a little bit of the context of the book. I'm not going to spend a ton of time on it, because we've got to move on. Um, but Titus is a letter written to a man named Titus, obviously, and it's written by the Apostle Paul. Um, and it's, a, it's an epistle that is written very similarly to First and Second Timothy in that it's written to a young elder, young pastor, specifically one that may have come to faith by Paul himself. Um, Titus is a guy that, even though it doesn't mention in the book of Acts he's coming to saving faith or when or where or how it happened, um, some commentators mostly agree that it probably happened during Paul's second missionary journey. And um, after Paul's first imprisonment, Titus was taken to the island of Crete, where there was gospel ministry either going on already, because Cretans were also part of the people that were there uh, at Acts 2, the day of Pentecost, when Peter gave his sermon. Um, Cretans were there, so there was either a church already established there by believers that heard the gospel and went back, or Paul started himself. I'm not really sure. Um, But Titus was taken with Paul there, and was left there to continue on the ministry. Titus is a close associate with Paul in the past, and he's specifically seen, I think, maybe eight or nine times in the book of 2 Corinthians. He was the guy that actually delivered the letter to the 2 Corinthians, and twice, I think, he was the one that took up the collection for the saints in Jerusalem from the Corinthians. So Titus and Paul were very close, and the the purpose of this passage, technically, was to write to encourage Titus and to instruct him. I was encouraging him because he had a massive daunting task to plant and establish churches on the island of Crete. Um, It was a daunting task because, as Titus specifically says in verse 12 of chapter 1, the Cretans, a prophet of their own, say that Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. So Cretan people of themselves considered themselves lazy, gluttonous people, and evil. So not only did Titus have a hard time with maybe the audience of just the Cretans, there were also Judaizers, or people that wanted to disrupt the true teaching of the gospel by holding fast to things of the circumcision party of old Jewish ways. So Titus had a, a daunting task and Paul wanted to write to encourage him to do that. But he also specifically went to instruct him about the type of person that he was supposed to pick out for the office of an elder. And then he goes on through instructing Titus to think about how to instruct people of the congregation how to interact with one another. And then he goes on and talks about how he should instruct the people in the congregation to interact with people outside the church. So this passage that we're looking at today is sandwiched right in between two bread pieces, per se, of instruction. It's got instruction for people from inside the church and how they're supposed to interact with each other. Then there's our foundation for why, which we're going to look at. Then there's instruction in chapter 3 about how you should interact with people outside the church. And then followed by that, there's some other foundation why, and then further instruction. So not only is it a sandwich, I mean, this is like a spiritual Big Mac. You've got like instruction, meat, instruction, some more meat, and some more instruction. So I was trying to think, is there a sandwich like that? I'm like, yes, there is. So I'm really excited about this because I didn't plan this day. Um, I chose this text not knowing what day it would be. 
But it's really neat that we are doing it today on the day that we're affirming membership because all the instructions to us to live these things out, specifically if you wanted to know, like in chapters 2, verses 1 through 10, with each other, we're, we're being instructed today to do that. But I have an opportunity now to come up behind that and say, this is, this is why. This is the foundation for proper living. This is the foundation for why we live with each other. So let's just jump right into the text. I'm going to read it, and then I'm going to pray. Verse 11 of chapter 2. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Let's pray. Father, as we come before you, Lord, this morning, and I open up this word, God, may it not be my words at all, where I'm terrified of taking something that you originally intended and construing that in some way, but God, may you send your Holy Spirit to continue, even as I've already studied for weeks, just to continue to clarify my thoughts as I speak, so that the words that are spoken are your words, and that the intention of your redemption that's seen in this passage is the same intention seen today. I pray that you'd bring clarity and that you would just um, be glorified in all things. It's in Christ. So let's just jump right into it. I mean, that's, we've got a long ways to go, but hopefully I'll, like I said, be to the point. Um, the first thing in your notes we're going to write down is the manifestation of God's grace. And this is seen in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. The word for it's a Greek word that's just used like our English word. It's a conjunction that connects what is about to be said to everything that was said before. Specifically in chapter 2, the first 10 verses. But even more specifically, the last phrase, which is in verse 10, where slaves are supposed to be obedient and submissive to their masters because they're Christians now, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared. So there's an instruction right there at the last part in verse 10 that talks about slaves, the lowest class of people, the lowest rank of people that have now been regenerated by faith, are to live differently so that they may adorn the doctrine of God, they may beautify. It's like cosmetics. It's like arranging jewels in such a way to make it beautiful. Like the, the new lives that they live adorns the doctrine of God. That's what's happening. And then the foundation for before we examine what the grace of God is, I looked at this word appeared, and this is where we're going to start with the first point, which says the mystery of grace revealed. The first coming of Christ made known the mystery previously hidden. This word appeared is, is the Greek word that is epiphaneo or epiphano. Um, not exactly sure how to say it, but it, it specifically means to become clearly known, to appear, to break into light suddenly, to show oneself. Uh, John MacArthur states that it is especially that of becoming manifest in a way that was previously unseen. So I started thinking about this, like the grace of God appeared, bringing salvation to all people. Okay, we, we know this, but what about it in its appearance wasn't known before? What about God's grace wasn't known specifically, and especially in a way that it hadn't been before? And the Greek word for grace is kavis, sakaris, or however you say it, but it, it definitely means just unmerited favor or kindness shown. And so I started thinking, like, what about God's 
unmerited favor or kindness wasn't especially revealed. I mean, anytime he sends rain on people that don't deserve it, anytime he you know, gives us another breath, believers and non-believers, it's all God's grace. But there's a specific aspect that was hidden. So I began to look up the word uh, mystery as it comes up in Paul's discussions in the New Testament. And I'm just going to read a few passages for you about this mystery. Um, the first one we're going to read is out of Ephesians. And it's 1, 8 through 9. You can just listen if you want. Verse 7, In him we have redemption through his blood, talking about Jesus, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So there's a mystery of his will that was set forth in Jesus to unite all things to himself according to his grace. So there's this aspect of this mystery that's now becoming revealed in Paul's day. And this is what he says. And then if you jump over to Ephesians 3, 3 through 4, he says, When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So I started seeing this unfold. There's a mystery. It's not really fully revealed about God's grace. And specifically, it's a plan. It was a plan that was set forth in Christ before ages began to unite all things to himself. And in that, specifically that Gentiles be included in that. Because in the Old Testament, it's clear that he's set apart a people for himself and it's Israel. But now, with this appearance of grace, this first epiphany, there's something that's more clearly known. And we're beginning to see that it's the inclusion of people that aren't Jewish. It's the inclusion of Gentiles. So I'm going to look at Colossians. Colossians 1, 26-27. 25 says, Of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to the saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you. And then down in chapter 2, verse 2, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding in the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So there's still an unveiling of what this mystery was. Specifically, the book of Colossians, Paul says it's Jesus. The mystery of God's grace that appears is Jesus. Another verse, and I'm just going to read these first ones after this one is moved. Through but Romans 16, verse 25. This is at the end of everything that he said in the book of Romans. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel in the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God, listen to this, to bring about the obedience of faith. To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. And so in this specific passage, God's will was that the mystery of Christ foretold in the Old Testament and revealed and fulfilled in Jesus be made known to who? To all nations for the purpose of bringing about the obedience of faith, thereby bringing glory back to God. 
So this plan set forth in Christ to unite all things to Him, Gentiles are included, so that there's an obedience and faith that's produced to bring God glory. And then the last verse that I'm going to read is 2 Timothy 9 and 10. Who saved us and called us to a holy calling is Jesus. Not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, in which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to life through the gospel. So Jesus is the incarnation of God's grace and His loving kindness. The book of Titus, like later on in chapter 3, it talks about when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. So this appearing, this is, a, this is an important word, at least for me in my study, because it's something that's past tense, it's historic, but it's being revealed in such a way that wasn't previously known. And specifically, it's this grace of God. So it's not just His unmerited favor towards anything that's unworthy, anytime. That's true of God's grace all the time. But specifically, the grace of God can be more specifically said as unmerited favor towards wicked and un- unworthy sinners through Jesus who is the revelation of God's mystery, by which he delivers them from condemnation and death. So does that kind of make sense? There's an appearing of the grace of God, and we can know that. I mean, we, I knew that from reading it first off that it was talking about Jesus. But now I know why it's talking about Jesus. It's coming to light. It's breaking forth suddenly, just like Jesus came in Bethlehem over 2,000 years ago. And it's not just his birth. It's not just somebody seeing him. It's the manifestation of God's grace and his loving kindness. Everything that wasn't fully known and understood about God's grace and His love and kindness is now completely fulfilled in Jesus when He appeared. He came, God's grace is completely evident. And Paul's like, tell everybody, Gentiles are in. The mystery is being made known through the preaching of my gospel. So let's look at the result of grace appearing. It's the next point. Bringing salvation for all people is how the verse reads. So the grace of God appeared, it brings what? Salvation. This Greek word for uh, salvation, soterios, it means a saving or a delivery. Um, and the extent of what the soterios means for the salvation is determined by what, how it's used in the context. Um, you know, you could use saving for, you know, you got saved for falling in that hole, you know. You could use it in a lot of different ways, it's determined on context. But specifically in this passage, as we look through, it means salvation as a whole. Salvation from the past, from the present, from the future. These things that we know as justification, sanctification, glorification. It's all fully in realm of God's complete salvation that he brings through Jesus. John 3.16 is a verse that we all know. talks about for God so loved the world that he sent his only son. His only begotten son so that any who should believe in him should not live. Perish. So there's obviously a deliverance that's being brought from salvation. There's a gift of eternal life, but there's a deliverance from something that we deserve. There's a penalty for sin. And the grace of God brought a salvation that delivered people from the penalty of sin. Does that make sense? So now let's look at the last part of that verse. Bringing salvation for who? For all people. Um, There's a debate whether or not this means that the grace appeared to all people bringing salvation, or whether or not this grace appeared bringing salvation to all people. Obviously, how you interpret that changes the way that this verse means. But I would say that specifically to the the truth of how the Greek reads, that it's definitely, it appeared, bringing salvation to all people. 
But this can't be necessarily the way that I'm at least initially understanding it in English, because not everyone comes to saving faith in Jesus. So how could he bring a salvation that's for all people if not everybody could save? Well, that's where context is important, because this all people could be best understood as all types of people, all classes of people. Specifically, like the first ten verses that just was preceding this. talks about how when the grace comes, like people are supposed to live differently with each other. Older women, older men, younger men, slaves, masters, different ranks, different classes of people. God's grace came to save and bring a salvation for all people. And this, like we looked at before, is a revelation of a mystery that now includes Gentiles. So in your notes it says, there is now a non-exclusive offer of salvation for all people. Romans 1.16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And Galatians 3.28 says, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized in Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So God's plan A of redemption was to send and fulfill and reveal the manifestation of his grace and his love and kindness through Jesus. And bringing about a deliverance from sin that's available to all people, to all types of people. It doesn't matter what, where you come from, what your background is, what color you are, it's available to you. It's offered to all people. So let's, let's fill in a blank. I wrote that. that last thing says, by grace we are saved. From sin's penalty. That's the sum of what we just learned. By grace we are saved from sin's penalty. So God sent his loving kindness through Jesus and brought up a deliverance from the penalty of sin and left us, right? No. Like his grace came not only to bring a deliverance, and we've learned this from Adam for years about what his salvation really means. It's a, it's a, he continues to save us. And this is seen in this, this next part of the verse. The instruction of God's grace is point number two. And this comes from verse 12, which says, Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So God doesn't simply save us and then leave us. He saves us and trains us to live differently, so that our lives, being changed by the power of His grace, can show forth to people that he has the power to save and change. Otherwise, if people just live the same way that they always did, then how does that reflect God's saving power? Does that make sense? We have to live differently in order to show forth the saving power. And His grace continues in our salvation by instructing us to renounce certain things and to put on certain things. This word training is a, is a Greek word that specifically means to bring up, to train, to educate, to discipline. To train and teach as a teacher to a student. Or to train a child. And it encompasses all that's involved in the training process. Teaching, and correction, discipline, and encouragement. So that's encouraging to me. That not only was I justified by God's grace, but I'm continually being trained by it. As an instructor to me, to, to live differently. This is a quote that I found that super interesting. It's from David Brainerd, who was a famous missionary to the American Indians. He said, I never got away from Jesus and him crucified in my preaching. 
I found that once these people were gripped by the great evangelical meaning of Christ's sacrifice on our behalf, I did not have to give them many instructions about changing their behavior. So, His grace instructs us to live differently, but it's in light of the foundation of what Jesus came to do. It's in light of the foundation of what has been accomplished. And David Brainerd said, when you teach what Christ did, when these people fully understand that, he didn't really have to explain much about why they needed to live different lives. It was just a natural thing. Grace naturally starts to train us. Let's look at the first thing that it trains us to do. It trains us to deny, and that's in your name. It trains us to deny. Specifically, it trains us to deny ungodliness. Ungodliness is something that I always thought was just one and the same with unrighteousness. Uh, but it's different. It's, I mean, it's not much. It's two sides of the same coin. But I was thankful for the opportunity to understand what ungodliness means now. And the Greek word asabia means lack of reverence for God. You can write that down. Lack of reverence for God. Specifically, it's a lack of reverence for God that expresses itself in complete disregard for God in thought and in actions. So there's an ungodliness, especially in Romans 1, that talks about God's wrath is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress their truth by unrighteousness. So there's an ungodliness that God is revealing his wrath against along with unrighteousness. And and as I started looking at this and seeing that this lack of reverence of God, it's, it's neat to see that the first thing that grace does to train us when we get saved is to tell us to deny our old ways of thinking about God. This stuff works out. There's a commentator that says um, that a no-God worldview, which comes and makes itself available in practical atheists. So there's a, people, before they're saved, that has this mindset about who God is. They have specific thoughts about it that are wrong, that lead to unrighteous living. But the first thing that grace changes, trains us to change is those thoughts about God. It changes us to not be ungodly in our thinking, because wrong thinking will lead to wrong living. Right thinking will lead to right living. So before it starts even touching why we should live differently rightly, it changes our thinking. And it, treats, it changes, trains us excuse me, to renounce Ungodliness, And that's in your notes where grace disciplines us to reject wrong thinking. The second thing that it trains us to do is to reject worldly passions. This is the longest Greek word I've ever seen in my life, so I'm not going to even try to say it. Um, but it's because the worldly passions seems like they're kind of connected into one word. And it really is like the cosmos kind of thing comes from the cosmos. It's like the arrangement of the stars the heavens and then the epithemias or whatever is like lusts. So when you put them together, it's like a worldly lust. Um, so understanding it spiritually, John MacArthur would say, they're lusts, you can write this down, which are characteristic of the godless human system. Lusts, which are characteristic of the godless human system. Or, or simply character of this corrupt age. Character of the corrupt age. So these are things that grace disciplines us to reject wrong desires as well. When we're dead in our sins, like Ephesians 2 talks about, we can only carry out the desires of the flesh. We can't do anything else. But when God brings salvation, His salvation trains us not only to renounce our old ways of thinking about who God is, but our old ways of living, which is a replacement of desires. 
Now we're commanded and trained to deny these things. 1 Peter 4, 1-5. It's a verse that specifically talks about, it commands us to no longer live for human passions, but to live the rest of the time in the flesh for the will of God. And I think that I wrote, I did, but if you want to jot this down, you can go back and read it. So 1 Peter 4, 1-5 commands us to no longer live for human passions, but to live for the will of God. Romans 12, 1-2 commands us not to be conformed to this world. I think the most famous one for me is 1 John 2, 15-17 that commands us not to love the things of this world. And then it goes on to say the things of this world are desires of flesh, desires of eyes, the pride of possessions. So grace comes. It's manifested in Jesus and it brings us salvation from the penalty of sin but it continues to train us to renounce old ways of thinking and to renounce old desires that are characteristic of this godless world that's controlled by Satan. So does that make sense? There's fleshly desires, and worldly desires can be seen in many passages in the New Testament. Specifically, Galatians 5 talks about that the desires of the flesh include, here's a list of them, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, drunkenness, orgies, envy, and things like these. It's evidently clear that we are instructed to put off the old self with its desires and put on the new self. Romans 13, 14 says this, But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So this is interesting because this is where this verse that we're in is going to continue on. Grace appears, trains us to live differently. The first thing it trains us to do is to deny worldly passions and ungodliness. But it doesn't just stop there. We're not just a bunch of people that are known for what we don't do. right? We're a bunch of people that want to be known for what we do. And this is a consistent pattern for Paul. He always talks, like in your notes, it says, grace trains us to replace the old with the new. Paul always uses this most, in most occasions. Um, there's passages that you could write down, Romans 6, 5 through 19, Ephesians 4, 22 through 24. In fact, I'll read that one. It says, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through the deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. You see that pattern? Put off the old, to put on the new. There's a replacement going on. Colossians 3, 9 and 10. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So grace trains us to live and to deny. To deny these things and to live for these things. So let's just really quickly look at what these things that it's training us to live for. The first thing is self-control. So this is under the point, trains us to live. Self-control, or another way that you can understand is to live soberly. This is what you can write down. It literally means sound mind temperate. Which is a way that's easy for me to understand. To have oneself well in hand. Sound mind and To have oneself well in hand. This is seen by not being tossed to and fro by passions and desires. Self-control naturally relates to one's personal life so that we're free under God's control to overcome life-dominating patterns. So... The things that he trains us to deny 
he comes out, he comes out and says, now these are the things that I'm training you to put on. And there's three things. They specifically relate to how you relate with yourself. They relate with how you to interact with other people and how you to relate with God. So that's the first one, self-control. It relates to how we should live in the here and now with ourselves. Grace came and it trains us to live differently. It trains us to be able to overcome life-dominating patterns on our own. So this is self-control. I mean, this is the basics here. This is where, now that we're Christians, we live differently and we exercise that out by being self-controlled. We don't give in to the passions of our former flesh. We don't have to give in to the the computer when we sit down to it, or to those wrong thoughts that come out about somebody in hatred. Like, we don't have to do those things. God has given us grace and set us free to be able to choose good. Before we couldn't, we were dead in our sin, but now we can choose it. But we've got to exercise self-control in this present world. And it's, it's neat for me to think, it's not just a, like I said, self-control is a denying of these things, but it's a putting on. It's the ability to, to replace in your own life. The next thing is upright. Or you should, we can say we should live righteously. The Greek word means, and you can write this down, justly, uprightly, in a just manner. Upright relates to one's relationship with others or to our neighbor in fairness, integrity, honesty, and truthfulness. So you can just write justly, upright, in a just manner. So the second thing that grace trains us to do is to live uprightly or righteously towards others in obedience to God's word for the sake of others. Now we have a new command and that command is love. So it's justly, uprightly, or in a just manner. These are sort of self-explaining, so I'm just going to kind of go through them. In godly, as we can assume, is just the reverse of what was implied in ungodliness. It's a reverence for God. It's a regard for God. It's just a reverse. Godly, living godly naturally pertains to one's relationship with God and that one's life centered on Him is the primary object of worship and on His will and purposes. This forms the foundation and source of motivation and control for the other two relationships. That's what a commentator says. In your notes it says, this change has an effect on three relationships. Like I said, our relationship toward ourselves Others in God. And it's done, like the next part of the verse says, training us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. In what? The present age. God doesn't just bring salvation and rescue us from the penalty of sin and then tells us to go live on some mountain as a hermit. He doesn't want us to do that. He also doesn't bring salvation and save us and then take us immediately home. He leaves us here. Jesus, when he prayed for his disciples, didn't pray that God would take them out of the world, but that they would be guarded against the evil one while they live out their love here, while we live out lives that proclaim the truth of what God is able to do through his saving word. So it has a change on all kinds of relationships in this present age. And just like Adam's message, God has invested and purchased into us, like someone would, into a dilapidated house. But as we know, like he mentioned, you don't just do that and leave the dilapidated house the way it is. The purpose is to take hold of that house and to change it and demonstrate a power of what you're able to do with it. So God's desire is not only to, to purchase us and to have us and then just to leave us, but it's to train us to be different while we live here. And this is all because grace came and was manifested in Jesus. So, in your notes, by grace 
We are trained to live differently. We're trained. That's just so encouraging. Because yes, there is a, a command for me to work out my own salvation. But like in Philippians, it talks about God's working to will for his own good pleasure. So God's doing this. His, his grace is trained. And yes, that's going to be more or less more effective as I submit to the Holy Spirit daily, as I submit to discipleship and the teaching of the Word. But at salvation, it immediately changes our ways of thinking, or at least instructs us to deny those ways and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. Let's move on to, to point three. The anticipation of future hope. So through the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, verse 13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Blessed hope is another way to say blessed is happy. So there's a happy hope that we're waiting for. Um, and the blessed hope is, the Greek word there is to anticipate usually with pleasure. For Christians, it's a joyful and a confident expectation of eternal salvation. So the Christian's hope is seen in, in Scripture is having eternal life. I mean, he says that in the verse 2 of chapter 1 in Titus. He says, in hope of eternal life. So eternal life is obviously the Christian's hope. And it's not just something that we're hoping will come about. That we're not really certain. Hope is to anticipate, usually with pleasure, a confident expectation. So there's a hope. Is it eternal life? Sure. Is it glorified bodies without sin? Absolutely. Is it being able to see loved ones who passed away? Absolutely. To receive rewards for faithful living? Absolutely. To reign with Christ? Absolutely. But in this context, it specifically kind of hones it down into one thing. The Christian's blessed hope is the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So let's look at the object of our hope. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now remember we talked about this appearing already. For the grace of God, what? Appearing. It's the first epiphany, as people say. Um, referring to the first coming. And there's a second appearing, a second epiphany that we're waiting for. That we're, again, eagerly expecting to come about. But this is what's neat, is that some people say that this should be translated, waiting for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of Jesus Christ. And they separate these two things. Some commentators I've read said the blessed hope refers to Jesus coming back, and or the, the rapture, and that the glorious appearing refers to Jesus coming back and the second coming. Others review the, the second one as the resurrection of the body. And they say separate these two. But there's a, there's a Greek rule, and I'm going to step over here outside of our notes just a little bit to kind of get off on this little thing. But there's a Greek rule that Jake and I talked about a long time ago. It's called the Granville Sharp Rule. And mainly in the Granville Sharp Rule, and I know this is just information, but it's really interesting, especially if you talk to Jehovah's Witnesses. If you have... A phrase that's connected by the Greek word chi or and. And the first part has an article B, and the second one doesn't. Then those two things mean one and the same, they're not two separate things. So we wait for the blessed hope and glorious appearing. So we're not waiting for two separate things, we're waiting for one and the same. The blessed hope, the Christian's blessed hope, is the appearing 
of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So why did I tell you about the, the uh, granule charcoal? Well, because it comes into play even greater just a few words later. And this is where this verse is an awesome verse to use in support of the deity of Jesus. It's great. I've talked to the Jehovah's Witnesses that like to come to us on Saturdays about this specific thing. And, I mean, obviously they're blind on it, so they can't understand it. But they like to separate this, that we're waiting for the appearing of our great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And there's some problems with that. The first problem is that in the New Testament, God the Father is never shown to be at the appearing of Jesus. It's just not seen. But more specifically for me, beyond that, which is abundantly clear, is the aspect of that same grand instruction. Is that we're waiting for the appearing of the great God and Savior, our Jesus Christ. That's how it literally means. So the great God and Savior, our Jesus Christ. It means one and the same. Jesus Christ is our great God and Savior. It's all about Him. So it's in a sense like whenever I say my wife and best friend Sarah, this is how we understand it. It doesn't mean my wife and my best friend Sarah. It means my wife and my best friend Sarah. We're, we're waiting for the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So this appearing in the same way is to shine forth and break forth into light suddenly. And it was so neat to think about the correlation between what Paul's saying. It's that in the first appearing of Christ, what is made manifest? What is revealed? God's grace, His love, and His kindness. Some things that weren't really necessarily fully understood about grace and love and kindness was finally revealed in Jesus when He came. And for the Christian's blessed hope or happy hope is the revealing or the manifestation of all that God is in His glory. So there's aspects that I don't understand of God's glory that I will be able to see when Jesus comes back. And yes, when Jesus does come back, it will bring with us, with it, the resurrection of our bodies, us being able to see other people, receiving rewards, reigning with Jesus. There's tons of things that we're to be anticipating and eagerly expecting to come true. But this verse specifically states that the Christian's blessed hope is the appearing of Jesus. And when grace appears and it trains us to live differently, there's a natural anticipation for Jesus to come back. That's what we prayed about this morning. That as we covenant together as a church, that we're doing it as we wait for Jesus to come back. There's another sandwich here. He came, we're here, and he's coming again. We're in the middle. And he calls us to different lives while we're here, all while waiting for him to come back. So in your notes, Jesus himself is the object of the Christian's hope and the manifestation of God's glory. Philippians 3 says that our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior. The object there is we're awaiting a Savior. We're awaiting Jesus. The Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body, by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. 2 Timothy 4.8 Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who loved his appearing. So Jesus is the object of the Christian's hope, the manifestation of God's glory. So in your notes, by grace, we now wait expectantly. By grace, we wait expectantly. And this is the last point that we'll cover. And this
And it's the intention of God's saving grace, or His intention in revealing grace. This is just a reiteration of what grace came to do in the first appearing. He's just diving deeper into it to establish a foundation for why we're supposed to live differently with people in the church and with people outside the church. So the first thing, grace came to ransom a people. Grace came to ransom a people. Jesus gave himself to redeem us from sin's possession. So this is seen in the next verse that talks about who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So let's look at that, just that first phrase right there. Who gave himself? Before we look at what that means, this is also another indication why it's talking about one and the same, about Jesus being the great God, because who and himself are singular. So it's not talking about two people coming back, or two persons to God, it's talking about one. Jesus is our God. And to think that our great God sent his grace through Christ and gave himself for us to redeem us. This gave himself is an idea that was completely voluntary. It's all about what grace is. It's unmerited favor. We didn't earn it. We didn't deserve it. And he gave himself. We know this when we study Philippians 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. He gave himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Ephesians 5, 2, And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This continues on in Galatians 2, 20. In the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In Galatians 3, 13, Christ redeeming us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. So when he gave himself for us, this for us is not just a gift that he decided to give. It's intended to be understood as in place of us. We were supposed to be the recipients of God's wrath. We were supposed to be the recipients of what was coming to us because of the penalty of sin. But Christ, sent forth by God before ages began, revealed the grace of God by him emptying himself voluntarily, completely, in our place. This is the beauty of the atonement. It's, it's substitutionary atonement. We deserve to die. We deserve to die spiritually. We deserve to bear God's wrath. But Christ gave himself for us as our substitute. Why? Well, here's a particular reason. To redeem us from all lawlessness, as the verse goes on to say. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. Listen to these verses. Matthew 20, 28. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. A ransom. 1 Timothy 2, 5-7, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, that man, Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Galatians 1, 3-5, Grace to you. Peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of God our Father, to be glory forever. So Paul's laying down the foundation for Titus. 
instructing his people how they ought to live. Because God's grace has come and has brought us salvation for us from the penalty of sin and it trains us to live differently. And we do this because Christ, who is our God, who is our hope and eager expectation to come back to be the manifestation of glory, he gave himself voluntarily to take what should have been ours to take and to bear what should have been ours to bear. But also to redeem us from lawless works. Redeem, the Greek, is to liberate by payment of ransom. So this is under grace came to redeem a people. To liberate by payment of a ransom. Obviously the freedom that it's liberating us from is the power of sin and its active presence in our daily life. And the price for that was the death of Christ. But it wasn't just to bring us back to a state of neutrality. It's not that we're slaves to sin over here. Jesus came, he brought salvation. Not only, you know, just left us here, but he's training us to live differently. So he didn't just save us from the past presence of being slaves to sin and then bring us back to a thing of being neutral or we're completely free either way to do whatever we want. He purchased us with things not perishable like gold or silver, but by his own blood. He purchased us to be his people who are zealous for good works. So we, we don't belong to sin anymore, but we do belong to Christ. So that's the next point. Grace came to sanctify our people. And I know I'm going quick through this, but you can take these notes and just go through them yourself and, and hopefully see all just the amazing things that I was able to see. And this is evidenced by, and he came to purify for himself people for his own possession. So in your notes, Jesus purified and set apart the church to be his treasured possession. Listen to this in the Old Testament. This is really deep. Exodus 19, 5-6. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, God speaking, and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Deuteronomy 7, 6. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. That's incredible. It's talking about the Jewish people. God has evidence in the Old Testament that he set apart and sanctified a people for himself. And he gave them different laws. He made them do different things that separated themselves from the outside work of everybody else in the world to demonstrate what God was able to do with his people. But now in the New Testament, now that we've already seen grace has been revealed that includes Gentiles, this is, this is for the church. And it's not that the church replaces Israel in any way. It's just that God's point of having a people for himself was Jews at first, and now we get to come into that. So we are part of this. First Peter 2 talks about, but you, church, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you were God's people. Once you have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So for his possession in this text, it means to set apart, reserved for. William Barclay, who's a commentator, says it was specially used for that part of the spoils of a battle or of a campaign which the king who had conquered set apart specially for himself. Isn't that neat? A king comes in, he conquers something, there's a ton of spoils there, and he says that this 
aspect of this, I'm setting apart as a special possession for me. And this is what Scripture says that God did for the church. He brought salvation to include us into that. Because remember, we're not Jews here. We get to be included into that. We get trained by that grace to live differently. We expect the manifestation of glory coming back in Jesus. And it's all out of the basis that God himself gave himself in our place to pay for what we should have paid for. Because he wanted to purchase or redeem a people that belonged to him as his treasured possession. I mean, what in the world? Seriously, I mean, I know it doesn't, you can't, you can't grasp it, because I've been thinking about it you know, for a long time. But the fact that God demonstrated his own love for me, that while I was a sinner, he sent Christ to die for me. To redeem me from old ways, but not just to make me live differently so that he can show, look, there's my little robots over there that live differently now. But to, to redeem a people from him who are not slaves to sin anymore, but are slaves to God. And slaves in the sense of being completely free for the first time in our life to choose right, to choose righteousness. And the last phrase here, who are zealous for good works. who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. The Greek word zealous means desire earnestly or pursue. One burning with zeal. So I'm not, I'm not going to go into this completely in detail because this is where I ran out of time in the sense of I didn't get to figure out what it completely means to be zealous for good works. But I do know that in light of what Christ has done for us, He's created a people who are to be zealous for good works. I can tell you what zealous means, but I can't really tell you how I'm supposed to be working that out in my life. But I am working that out. And hopefully one day, I'll figure out what it truly means to be zealous, to be eager, to desire earnestly, or to pursue good works. In the book of Titus, I mean, later on He tells Titus, Tell people to remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be ready for every good work. Later on he says that they may be careful to devote themselves to good works. And now in verse 14 he says, let our people learn to devote themselves to good works. So even though I'm not necessarily certain how this plays it out practically in my life, I do know that God's desire was to redeem a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And the instruction that Paul seems to be giving Titus here is to tell people to devote themselves to that. So where it starts for me is understanding the good works that I was created in Christ to do, as Ephesians 2 talks about, and to devote myself to do those things. I mean, what would it look like for me to wake up each day and understand that I'm not saved by my works. We're not talking about a works-based salvation. What's been done is by God's grace, unmerited faith. But I am called to do good works. I was created in Christ to do good works. But not just to do them in passive attitude of duty, but to do them zealously, to do them eagerly, to, to do them as one burning with zeal. To like wake up each morning and say, God, the works that you created for me to do, help me see them and, and allow me to just be passionate about doing them. I know that you want me to share the gospel with people. I, want, I know that you want my changed life to demonstrate your power. So may I live self-controlled, passionately, and earnestly. May I live righteously and in love with other people in our church, zealously. And may I love you and revere you in my mind and think about you correctly and love you for who you are, passionately. 
May I not just be this aspect of a recipient of God's saving grace that just continues to walk and just pass into it. That's what Paul's talking about. You live differently among believers in the first ten verses, and you live differently among outsiders in chapter three, but it's all because of what God has done. It's all because of the gospel. I'm not teaching anything anybody doesn't know. But what it is means is that when we have a day like today to embark on membership, we've got a whole covenant of good works to do to each other. We've got a whole covenant of instruction. But it's really important that we remember the reason why we do this is because God brought a salvation to us that gave us the ability to even choose to do these things. But he does it in such a way to where he wants his people to be zealous for doing it. So that, that is a huge indication about how I pray for Jesse. God doesn't want me just to recognize it's my duty to pray for Jesse, and I'm going to be a good sovereign hope member and pray for him, because I wrote it down that I would. But then I wake up each day, and I'm like, God, I just, I earnestly desire to pray for Jesse in his sanctification. I earnestly desire that he would be self-controlled and upright in God and love. I earnestly desire to seek to share the gospel with people. I mean, every good work, I'm not going to stand here and say it all, because we've got years of instruction that we already know, and lots more that we're going to learn. But it is the foundation of this entire book, is what we just said. So I'm going, to, I'm going to read you one quote. But before I do that, your last thing is, By grace we work zealously. By grace we work zealously. This is a quote of Charles Spurgeon. And I was really encouraged when I read a sermon of his on this passage. He delivered it, I think, in 1886. And he was talking about the anticipation of Jesus coming back. He was getting so excited about it that he was talking about it as if it was going to happen right then. He was like, I can hear the chariot wheels turning, and it's been 130 years. But he, the, the aspect, the expectation of Christ's promises to him, there's just evident of what he's talking about. But when he gets to the aspect of being zealous for good work, it's just like he cries out and says, Would to God that all Christian men and women were disciplined by divine grace until they became zealous for good works, in holiness, in zeal, in sobriety. We are not only to approve of good works and speak for good works, but we are to be red hot for them. We are to be on fire for everything that is right and true. We may not be content to be quiet and inoffensive, but we are to be zealous of good works. Oh, that my Lord's grace would set us on fire in this way. There is plenty of fuel in the church. What is needed is fire. A great many very respectable people are in their very sleepy way doing as little as they can do for any good cause. This will never do. We must wake up. Oh, the quantity of ambulance work that Christ's soldiers have to do. One half of Christ's army has to carry the other half. Oh, that our brothers and sisters could get off the sick list. It talks about what the ambulance type work that we have to spend our time doing to carry each other because most of us just are content to just, in their very sleepy way, do as little as they can for any good cause. But what we're committing to do in membership is very important individually. Because as you commit to me to live out the aspects of the covenant, and as we commit to each other, we're in a sense reducing the amount of ambulance work that we have to spend our time doing. And we can devote ourselves to doing and pursuing and devoting ourselves to good works and the reaching of the lost. And demonstrating to them the power of what God's grace can do in our lives. So, that's the big picture. And like I said, I, I, I tell you to go and study it yourself. 
it's, it's really encouraging to just know that, to be reminded, for no other reason for me to speak today, just to remind you of the gospel. The gospel is God's plan A always to reconcile a, a broken world to himself by his grace through Jesus, when we didn't deserve it. But he did it specifically so that the people that are his now would be zealous to do good things. So here's some questions and challenges, and then I'm done. First question, am I a recipient of God's grace? Have I been reconciled to God? Most of us that have affirmed membership in here believe that we have been, and leadership has attested that that is true by your testimony and baptism story. But if, if you're not, I mean, regardless, this is a good opportunity to say, am I a recipient of God's grace? If the answer is abundantly yes, then what kind of people ought we to be? What kind of people ought we to live now because of God's same grace? But if you're not, there may be a chance that someone here has not been truly reconciled to God. The challenge here is to repent and be saved. That's in Acts 2, 38-39. Repent and be saved. There is an aspect where you can enter in to this special treasured possession of a people of God. It's by grace and faith. It's all based off of His grace. And you can enter in by giving up surrendering to his plan and repenting of their sin. Second thing is, am I submitting myself to the discipline and grace of God? Am I daily surrendering to his spirit? This is thing that obviously some days we may say yes and other days we may say no. But the challenge is the same. Submit and be trained. Submit and be trained. Like we've already talked about, we have a an awesome, abundant grace that trains us, our part is to submit to that. Next, are you looking toward the future manifestation of God's glory? Are you praying for it to come? This is where it kind of got me. Yes, I'm looking forward to it. Yes, I'm excited about it. But is it to the point where I'm praying for it to come? I had to admit, no. I don't know how many days that I go without praying for God to come back, to wrap this up, allow us to see you. Manifest your glory. I want to be with Christ. Jesus, come. Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. Why, why, why do I not pray? I don't know, but I'm praying that God will, by His training grace, allow me to study and understand the foundation for what He's done so that very naturally I'm going to be praying these things because I'm looking for Him to come back. So the challenge is to wait and be watchful. And the guys can come up as we're going to use our reflection time and sing. The last one is, are you zealous in pursuit of doing good works? In my love for people and my love for God. The challenge is simple. Work and be eager. Be eager. Or be zealous. The foundation is we have to repent and be saved. And once we're saved, we need to be submission, in submission to be trained. As we wait in our watchful, anticipating it to come, all the while while we're working eagerly to devote ourselves to good works. Like I said, I've got a lot more thinking to do about this, about how this works itself out in my life. Thanks for listening. I know I've gone through it really quickly. Uh, just, as I mentioned, this is the foundation for proper living, the gospel. And we know this, but there's an aspect to it that I didn't understand fully at first, and that's that I'm to be zealous for good things. 
So let's pray. Father God, I thank you so much for the opportunity that you've given me to just study this passage, much less to attempt to try to pass the information. God, I thank you for setting aside this time for me to understand the truths of the text. God, we thank you for revealing your grace in Christ in that first period. We thank you that the mystery that was hidden for ages and generations can now be known, that we can be included in this, and that it's a salvation to deliver us from the penalty of sin. But God, I thank you so much that you don't just leave us there, that your grace trains me to live differently while I'm here, to renounce old ways of living and to put on new, all the while saving me from the daily active power of sin. God, I thank you that there is an expectation of a happy post that I can look forward to when Jesus comes back to be another manifestation, another appearing of your glory. And even how that looking towards that motivates me to live godly in this present life. God, I thank you for the, just the expectation that it's a promise that you're going to fulfill. And God, I thank you for the, the intention that you showed us that you gave yourself the great God and Savior voluntarily gave yourself for me to redeem me from these lawless works that I was once used to be in. And to set me aside as a treasured possession. But not just me, to set the church aside, to set us together aside as a treasured possession who are zealous for good works. So God, may the application for my own life and may others hopefully hear it to be to take this away and to Examine what it means for them to be zealous in their personal life, towards the lost and towards the believers, but specifically in the things that we've covenanted to do together as members. May we be zealous for good works, and may we demonstrate to a lost world the power of your saving grace by the evidence of our lives that are completely changed. May we submit to that and not walk in darkness anymore. So Father, I thank you. Pray as we're going to sing that you would lead us to the cross where your love is poured out. Bring us to our knees, God, by humbling us, by reminding us of what you've done. It's all an attempt to lead us to your heart. God, and I believe that this passage indicates that your heart is that your people be zealous for good works. So as we sing, God, may it be an expression of our worship to you, may it be an expression of our thanksgiving for what you've done. And all these things we ask in Jesus' name. Thank you. 
And God, I pray that we would recognize the Holy Spirit's work in our life and submit to that, that we would become more and more the people who desire for us to be as we wait for the return of Jesus. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank <laughs> you.